This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Catacomb One of our earliest words of the week was little more than a rant against people misusing and abusing the poor word dungeon. That poor, overused little linguistic nugget has gradually been forced to refer to any and every underground adventure space in role-playing games, video games, movies, comics, and television shows. It was never meant to do that. It all started when it went from being the dungeon, the fortified central structure of a castle, to the prison chambers below the castle. Today, we're going to talk about another maligned word. Not so maligned as dungeon, but it's getting there. Maybe we can save it. Now, perhaps you think we're being a bit hyperbolic about the death of specific meanings for words, but we're not alone. None other than the great German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche is on our side. Friedrich Nietzsche is best known for his writings on morality and the nature of existence. He was born in a small town in Prussia in 1844. At the age of five, both his father and his brother died suddenly, and he was left the only male in his household, consisting of his mother, grandmother, aunt, and younger sister. As a result, when he first attended college, the social opportunities quickly overshadowed his studies. He joined a fraternity and spent all of his time with his friends, neglecting his schoolwork. But he was recognized as an exceptional thinker and attained a teaching post in the humanities. His teaching career was interrupted briefly by military service when he went off to fight the Franco-Prussian War. But his tour of duty was cut short by a bout of dysentery. He returned to teaching but still remained somewhat unfocused until he became inspired by some of the great thinkers of his day. He became friends with composer Reichard Wagner, whose bombastic over-the-top nature and gigantic ego made a great impression on the young philosopher. And he discovered the works of philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, which greatly influenced his thinking. Nietzsche is most famous for his writings on the nature of existence and on morality. He was obsessed with the question of how people become who they are, and he rejected external sources of meaning and morality. That is to say, he felt that whoever you were, it had to come from inside of you. His famous quote, God is dead, speaks to that idea. He decreed that that which does not kill you only serves to make you stronger, to emphasize the importance of self-improvement through experience. He became famous for his concept of the ubermensch, the superman, the ideal human being. All told, his writings are far too expansive and complex for just one paragraph in a 20-minute podcast. But he was a prolific writer and philosopher. And he was gravely misunderstood. And he still is. See, his writings went through a lot of phases, as did he himself. His opinions on things varied greatly throughout his life. Even his opinion of his friend Reichard Wagner wandered between admiration and disillusion. Worse, because he has been held up as a great thinker and because of his emphasis on the development of the self, many scholars have reinterpreted his works based on his own life experiences, picking apart every tiny detail in an attempt to tease out the truth. And his works have been greatly misinterpreted. He is often held up as a nihilist, one who believes that there is no purpose or meaning to life. But while he went through a nihilist period and wrote a great deal on the subject, he was actually gravely concerned about the effect that nihilism would have on society. 
Worse yet, his journals and unpublished writings were reworked by his sister after his death to support her own ideals, which included support for German militarism and the National Socialist Party. You might know the National Socialists better by their nickname, the Nazi Party. But the only thing we're concerned with right now is that Nietzsche once described language as tired, dead metaphor. Basically, he said that words are just symbols that approximate concepts. The word chair isn't literally a chair. It's an approximation of the idea of a chair. And the more meanings you give a word, the more you strain the word. Think about it right now. Picture a chair in your head. How many legs does it have? Probably four. But can it have three? Or none, like a recliner that sits on the floor? Does it have a back? Must it have a back? What color is it? What's it made out of? Must it be made out of that? Just how many different things can the word chair describe? Thus, cramming too many meanings into a word weakened the word, according to Nietzsche. It made it inexact, just like dungeon and catacomb. So what is a catacomb? Well, if you're a gamer, you probably think of it as an underground maze filled with monsters, a labyrinth, a dungeon. John Carmack, lead programmer and co-founder of id Software, certainly thought so. Born in 1970 in Kansas, Carmack became interested in computers and science at a young age. When he was caught breaking into a computer lab at his junior high school using a homemade napalm-like substance, he was arrested. A psychiatric evaluation described him as brilliant, a brain on legs, but lacking in any human empathy whatsoever. He dropped out of college and taught himself computer programming, and set himself up as a freelance programmer. Soon thereafter, he was hired by a software developer named Softdesk, and he met John Romero. The team of Carmack and Romero were probably most famous for the video game series Doom the first of which was one of the earliest first-person shooter-style games. In it, you are a nameless space marine working on a science station on Mars. The teleportation experiments being done at the lab go wrong and accidentally open a portal to Hell. You, the doomed marine, have to kill Hell. All of it. That's the game. And believe it or not, the game was based on Romero's home Dungeons & Dragons game in which his players found themselves teleported to hell and had to kill it. All of it. Carmack was a revolutionary programmer. He developed the software tools which allow the creation of first-person games like Doom and its spiritual predecessor Wolfenstein, which was about killing Nazis. All of them. He developed the tools that allowed the primitive computers of the time to fake three-dimensional graphics without actually being able to think in three dimensions. And as a result, Carmack, Romero, and id Software practically invented the entire genre of first-person shooters. But we digress. See, before Doom and Quake, before Wolfenstein, before id Software even, Carmack developed a simple little adventure called Catacomb. You were a wizard. You had to go into a dungeon to recover some treasures, and you had some magical spells to help you explore 30 floors of adventure and kill goblins, skeletons, and other monsters. And there was nary a Christian corpse to be found anywhere. Why would there be Christian corpses? 
Because once upon a time, a catacomb wasn't a tired dead metaphor for a dungeon filled with monsters. Once upon a time, there was just one catacomb. The catacomb. And it was constructed so that Roman Christians didn't have to stick their dead in the same necropolis as filthy Roman pagans. We should note, because we discussed it in a previous episode, that Christians prefer to bury or inhume their dead. And the major reason for that is the belief that someday, the Savior Jesus Christ will return to the world to usher in the apocalypse. And while we think of that word as meaning the end of the world, the literal meaning is a revelation or imparting of knowledge. Anyway, after the apocalypse, all of the good souls will be reborn in their bodies in paradise. And because of this bodily rebirth, you need to keep your body around until then. But in ancient Rome, it was illegal to bury bodies within the city limits. Actually, this was true of most cities. Now, on Vatican Hill, there was a great necropolis, a massive collection of tombs and mausoleums and burial sites. Necropolis, by the way, means city of the dead. This necropolis was open to the public. Everyone and anyone could be buried there, pagan and Christian alike. But the Christians of Rome wanted their own burial sites. They wanted to honor their saints, and they wanted a place to hold feasts and rites in honor of the dead. They were affronted that one of their greatest saints of the day, St. Peter, was buried in the public Vatican necropolis. And so, the Christians started building underground burial vaults just off the Appian Way, outside of the city of Rome. The first of these vaults were family tombs built by the landowners themselves. Newly converted Christians, these landowners allowed other Christians to be buried in their family tombs. Gradually, the tombs were expanded. Through donations and purchases, the Christians acquired more land to build more tombs and places of worship above them. But this was a risky proposition. Because, as we've noted in previous episodes, Christians in Rome were not very popular. Often their lands were confiscated and their places of worship were destroyed. Still, the tombs expanded and tunnels ran between them. And then, in 313 CE, Emperor Constantine ended the persecution of the Christians and the expansion of the underground tunnels and tombs really took off. These tombs were called, in Latin, catatumbas, which means among the tombs. And the word gradually morphed into catacomb. The Roman catacomb was actively used from its original construction in the first century CE until around the 8th century. Many saints and martyrs were buried there, along with uncountable numbers of faithful Christians. And they are huge. In fact, no one is quite sure how huge they are. The Roman authorities claim that there are hundreds of kilometers of tunnels under and around the city, and they are not fully explored, so there may be more than anyone guesses. Now, you might wonder why they aren't fully explored. Well, that's because no one is allowed to explore them. See, the catacombs are now under the direct control of the Catholic Church. In order to even enter the catacombs, you need special permission from the Vatican. And they don't give out that permission lightly. Consider, for example, the story of Italian archaeologist Alfredo Barbagallo. Barbagallo is a contemporary archaeologist. After two years of study of medieval symbols and records, he came to an interesting conclusion. See, he discovered that back in 258 CE, while the Christian persecution was at its height, 
Pope Sixtus II entrusted several holy artifacts to a deacon named Lorenzo. These artifacts included, according to Barbagallo, the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is, according to legend, a bowl which Joseph of Arimathea used to catch the blood of Jesus Christ at his crucifixion. Because it once contained the blood of Christ, it has been attributed with numerous mystical powers, including eternal life. Over the years, the Holy Grail, by the way, the Grail is just a word that means bowl, the Holy Grail has been conflated with a holy chalice, which was the cup Christ drank wine from during the Passover dinner he attended the night before his crucifixion. And it has also been conflated with a magical cauldron of the Dagda from Celtic mythology, which you might remember from our episode about Ogma. And of course, the Holy Grail became the ultimate quest MacGuffin for many, many mythological figures, including King Arthur, Indiana Jones, and Tom Hanks. Barbagallo thought he might have discovered the location of Deacon Lorenzo's tomb. See, he was martyred just four days after he was supposedly entrusted with the Grail and other Christian artifacts, and so Barbagallo suspected he was buried with said artifacts, and he sought permission to enter the Roman catacombs to search for it. And the Vatican said no. They said there was no evidence to suspect that anything was buried there, and cited the fact that early Christians did not bury objects with the dead. Today, the catacombs are disused and abandoned and Vatican authorities rarely allow anyone to see the inside. In fact, they have been abandoned for over a thousand years. So why did the church stop burying its faithful dead in the Roman catacombs? Well, in the ninth century, barbarians, including the Goths and Longbeards, invaded Rome. And during the invasion, they plundered many of those catacombs. The Catholic Church scurried to remove the remains of its saints so they would not be desecrated. And after that, they just stopped using them. Speaking of the Holy Grail, though, if you're curious what the catacombs looked like, you could check out the 1989 Spielberg film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. In that film, globe-trotting adventurer and archaeologist Indiana Jones and his father search for the Holy Grail. In one scene, following clues in his father's journal, Jones travels to Venice and enters the Roman catacombs. Yeah, the Roman catacombs. Under Venice. See, the problem is, there are no catacombs under Venice. There's no anything under Venice, because the city of Venice actually floats. While most people know that the city of Venice is built across 118 small islands connected by canals and bridges, what most people don't know is that the city isn't actually built on the islands. In point of fact, the foundations of the buildings are built on wooden platforms that are staked to the ground. And that's because the marshy, muddy islands won't support any sort of real foundation. But the wooden foundations have actually survived for a long, long time. Because they are submerged, the wooden platforms are protected from the microorganisms and insects that normally destroy wood. But however durable those wooden foundations are, there's just no way you're going to build some ancient stone tunnels underneath. The scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in which Indy and his partner Elsa Schneider escape from the catacombs of not Venice was actually quite interesting for another reason, though. 
It was the first time an insurance policy included a deductible for 1,000 rats. And it's just too fun a story to leave out. See, filming a movie is expensive. You have to pay the cast and crew, transport everything to the site, spend time setting up all the equipment and use up film, and the costs really pile up. And if you spend a whole day filming a scene and get no usable footage, that money is just wasted. So it's not uncommon for producers to take out insurance policies to help recover their losses in the event that something happens that makes it impossible to film. For example, suppose you have a scene which involves several thousand rats scurrying around an ancient Roman catacomb, chasing your heroes while both the heroes and the rats flee from a massive fire. Animals are pretty unpredictable at the best of times. And if the rats don't perform the scene right, you've lost the day of filming. And a scene involving underground catacombs and fire is complicated and expensive. So before filming started, the producers of the film called their insurance company and inquired about their coverage for the scene in the event that the rats didn't perform. Now, most insurance policies include what's called a deductible. That's the amount of whatever that the claimant is responsible for before the insurance company will pay anything out. And, in this case, the insurance company had to quickly figure out the deductible. They ran some numbers and decided that the policy included a 1,000 rat deductible. That is, the insurance company would cover the cost of a lost day of filming if more than 1,000 rats failed to perform properly. But we digress. Getting back to catacombs, it wasn't until 1836 when the definition of the word catacomb went from being that place filled with Christians just off the Appian Way in Rome to any collection of underground tunnels and tombs where you put dead people. At that time, the word was used to refer to the similar collection of Parisian tombs and tunnels. And because many of those catacombs are open for exploration and public tourism, they quickly overshadowed the Roman catacombs in the public mind. Today, we use catacombs to describe underground tombs and burial sites all over the world, from Australia's Trinity College catacombs to Ukraine's Odessa catacombs. And we're okay with that. But in your game, don't pull a John Carmack and call any old maze of monsters and treasure a catacomb. Being precise in your descriptions allows your players to picture exactly what you want them to. Besides, you'll make us sad and Friedrich Nietzsche will roll over in his grave. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 